Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today we're going to get back to that uh, Terrence McKenna workshop that we've been uh, listening to, the one that took place in February of 1996. And in a previous section of this workshop, uh, the one that I played in Podcast 472, we heard Terrence for the first time confronting the fact that there was a possibility of a serious flaw in his time wave hypothesis. And while I haven't uh, played any of his detailed talks about the time wave itself for quite a while now, I thought that today I would go ahead and uh, play this uh, particular time wave discussion so that we can listen for any signs indicating that, uh, well, that maybe he was wavering in his devotion to this uh, favorite idea of his. And if you followed up after Podcast 472 and read some of the links to the rest of the story uh, after this uh, February 1996 workshop ended, uh, well, that's when Terrence went back to Hawaii, his home there, to rethink his position. And uh, if you did that research, then you know what happened next. But for right now, let's uh, just suspend our knowledge of the rest of the story and try to listen to Terrence as if we're hearing him for the first time when he talks about the time wave and about novelty. And for what it's worth, while we now know that the time wave hypothesis fell apart, uh, at least as it was uh, initially conceived by Terrence, nonetheless, I still have a hunch that somewhere in his ideas about novelty, habit, and in particular his thoughts about time itself, well, somewhere in there lies a secret that may one day yet give humanity a collective aha moment. But uh, <laughs> I wouldn't put any money on that hunch if I were you. Now here's Terrence. This maybe isn't the appropriate time for this, but it's, it's okay to mention it. Uh, <clears throat> in trying to think about the evolution of human consciousness, how did it come to be? Most of you are probably familiar with my theory of psilocybin influence, and I don't want to recapitulate that here. But here are some less often said things about it. It's clear, I think, if you look at the natural world with an unbiased eye, that the highest intelligence, and I don't want to have a knockdown, drag out debate about this, but the highest intelligence to my mind, without a lot of arm waving, is the behavior exhibited by large hunting cats, predators. Animals which live on plants, like cattle, for example, have no interest in observing the behavior of other animals. Uh, They are very preoccupied with just churning through herbaceous foliage. Uh, Predators, large carnivores, on the other hand, to be a successful hunter, any hunter will tell you you must understand, understand, note this word, the thing you hunt. So in a sense, what these large cats are able to do is they're able to think like foxes, think like rabbits, think like antelope. And this allows them to successfully predate upon these animals. Well then, it's very interesting that in shamanism worldwide, uh, at its most primitive 
level and often in the presence of hallucinogenic plants, you find this emphasis on large predatory cats and jaguar consciousness and shape-shifting. And essentially, it's almost as though the earliest form of human consciousness was not human consciousness at all. We saw the predatory success of these large cats. We admired it. We imitated it. And people who could become cats are what we would be a kind of a shaman, a jaguar shaman. Uh, Very interesting. Well, but then the difference between a hunting cat, I believe, and a human being is that the intelligence of the hunting cat is um, environmentally cued by circumstance. An antelope runs by, it pursues and kills it in a certain way which has worked before. Uh, Human beings, away from the hunt, intoxicated by uh, just large amounts of fresh meat, which if you're you know, marginally, nutritionally based and there's a big kill and the whole village eats, then usually everybody has sex together and then there's probably drug taking and religious thanksgiving and so forth. So everybody's feeling pretty good. And what emerges there is fantasy. This is what we do. We can command images in the absence of their physical... Uh, stimulus so and 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 being highly eroticized animals sexual fantasy is a major preoccupation of primates apparently as you've observed if you've ever taken children to the monkey house at the zoo then you have to explain all this wild masturbation that's going on and leads to fascinating discussions of animal and human behavior. Uh, So highly sexed human beings eating well after imitating cats, after having sex, after taking drugs, are certain then to contemplate the great what-ifs of life. What if we had gone earlier to the water hole? Perhaps we would have found more game than we did. And then in the erotic domain, erotic fantasy is entirely a series of what-ifs. What if I had been accepted in my my approach to so-and-so, and and then what if they had taken me into the bushes, and then what if, and what if? And as the hormones start flowing, the what-ifs start coming with greater clarity. Well, uh, this eroticization and this phenomenon of hunting all tumbled together, I think, probably was the basis for the emergence of human, early human consciousness. And of course, it, it's, it circles around the issue of free will. Implicit in the what-if is the path not taken. And by endlessly contemplating these bifurcating paths of what-ifs, slowly uh, an early human being or a proto-hominid would come to have the sense that, aha, behind all of this, looking at all of this, is something called choice-maker. And then 
self-identification. I am choice maker. I choose. And out of the images in my mind, I, certain ones, to use a Whiteheadian phrase, undergo the formality of actually occurring. And I think, you know, that and the the psychedelic stimulation to the imagination and the early human environment of uh, nutritional pressure, strange foods, alkaloid-heavy foods, impinging on the genome, so forth and so on, uh, really was what took us over the threshold. Uh, It was the combination of these hunting fantasies with erotic fantasy driven by uh, drugs and nutrition. Uh, just a new piece of data which is grist for this mill. Some of you have heard me talk about um, Roland Fisher's experiments where he showed graduate students uh, parallel bars and then gave them small amounts of psilocybin and showed that edge detection was increased in the presence of psilocybin. Visual acuity. Well, I gave this, I gave a talk like this in Mexico and Sasha Shulgin was in the audience and he said, there's an even better set of Fisher experiments which make your point even more strongly. He did another set of experiments in which he built an apparatus where you could raise a white uh, bar over uh, words projected on a screen so that <clears throat> uh, only the first, say the words were three inches tall, only the first quarter inch could be shown. We'd say people, can you read this sentence with only 10% of the letter shapes visible? On psilocybin, people were far better at this task than on the natch. And if you analyze what is this task, it's a very complex coordination of detail, a very complex. It's the ability to extract information from a situation and reach the the correct conclusion. So, uh, you know, I think we're on very firm ground here in suggesting that drugs do not uh, impede one's access to the nature of reality, uh, they often demonstrably and in very statistically controlled situations can be shown to enhance one's ability to coordinate and understand reality. Yeah. Uh, after the, you mean after the, yeah. after the drug wore off, could they do this? I doubt that the experiment was done. It would be interesting. Of course, the assumption would be no, but the experiment would certainly be worth doing. Uh, Can one learn on psilocybin to then do something which persists after the the drug is gone? Uh, It's an interesting question. Yes, I noticed when I was taking Prozac that what it does is it sets you slightly forward in social space and that once you have sufficiently analyzed what it does, you don't have to take Prozac. You can fake it. It's an attitude. It's basically a slight attitudinal adjustment toward social space. I describe it as leaning slightly into it. And once you become familiar with the feeling, you can just do it. 
So the drug becomes irrelevant. It has taught you a behavior, the positive feedback from which is so positive that in the absence of the drug, you continue to behave this way. I'm sure that hasn't been studied. But, you know, I think serotonin release is related to social space. And, you know, each of us, we feel a certain level of attraction and distance to each other. And we absolutely accept this. We don't understand that other people are different. Occasionally it will be in your face when somebody will stand in your social space. And then you realize, oh, this person is insensitive. They stand too close. But except in these kind of extreme cases, and sometimes indicating a pathology, uh, we manage to adjust these social distances. But it's a kind of index of alienation. You know, how interested are you in what other people have to say? Because it's not something that's cultural, because it's a new thing. Yeah, well, I think in cities, though, people sense invisible rules of social distancing, not only social distancing, but how eye contact is to be handled uh, when, you know, a bunch of guys are loitering, uh, flipping knives. You know, you don't cross to the other side of the street because then they know you're, you know, and you don't make eye contact because that's confrontive and you just have to tune your aura this certain way. We primates are very, very subtly adept at this, but it doesn't register in in language much. No, this is uh, something I talk about when I talk about human evolution. See, most animals um, specialize their foods very rigidly. This is almost genetically programmed. It's very rare to find an omnivorous animal. Almost primates are the only ones, and not all primates. And the thinking is that this is a a very conservative food acquisition strategy is necessary because it holds down natural rates of mutation. If you just started eating plants, you would contact all kinds of weird things because plants produce weird tertiary and secondary compounds that are designed to attract insects or repel insects or uh, and and you would get all screwed up one argument for what happened to us is that we had a very primate like diet of insects and fruits and canopy available foods and when the canopy got under nutritional pressure we had two choices, either go extinct or begin to experiment with food. And somehow our, our, the thing that has always saved us is our flexibility. Somehow in that situation we didn't go extinct. And I've just recently seen new papers about, in several parts of the world, they've discovered species of monkeys that only leave the canopy to acquire fungus, the jungle treetops. But they will come down to, uh, to uh, eat certain fungi. 
And even in the northwest coast forests of Oregon, there are these flying squirrels, which never come to the ground, except they have some amazing ability to, to locate truffles. And somebody described these things to me. They come sailing down and they hit the ground, at, it looks like about 20 miles an hour, dig furiously right where they hit, grab the truffles, and they're out of there. Um, and, uh, you know, I think psilocybin in the early human diet was something that we encountered as we moved into the grasslands, and that was all, that was a very tryptamine rich environment. Not only mushrooms, but, uh, gramine and grasses and cereals, uh, uh, baboons and other grassland primates eat a lot of corms, the roots of grasses, and <laughs> that stuff has a, a lot of toxic stuff in it. The, you know, the thing about our flexibility, we've talked in these workshops about the bonobo versus the chimpanzee in terms of sexual styles. Uh, you know, we differ by chimpanzees by 3% in the genome. There's another kind of chimpanzee called pygmy chimpanzees or bonobos that <clears throat> are not really physically smaller than regular chimpanzees. Their genome differs only by 2%. But the sexual styles of these two animals are so different that it, it's astonishing that two animals so similar in genome could have such completely diametrically sexual styles. The chimpanzees are monogamous, they have pair bonding, they have uh, sharply enforced and maintained male dominance hierarchies, so forth and so on. The bonobos are polymorphically sexual, orgiastic, uh, tolerate homosexuality, tolerate incest, uh, tremendous, all conflict is mediated through release of sexual energy. Well, then you have human beings and we are apparently right on the cusp because we have, you know, uh, rigidly defined monogamous societies where any breach of these monogamous rules brings death and disgrace. And we have polygamous societies uh, and we have societies where brothers, wives are shared with brothers as a matter of course. Uh, very interesting that our sexual style is not under genetic control. And I maintain that part of our, our strange position in reality has to do with the fact that we, we in the past, in the distant hominid past, had a male dominance hierarchy uh, as sharp defined probably as the chimpanzees. Anxiety about female sexual activity, anxiety about lines of male paternity, uh, rigid enforcement of all this, so forth and so on. Uh, at some time in our evolutionary past, when psilocybin became a major component of our diet, it, it acted as a catalytic enzyme on the psychoerotic complex and dissolved this tendency toward male dominance. Uh, 
uh, and replaced it with a more highly sexually expressive, polygamous, orgiastic uh, style of tribalism, which persisted for a long time, maybe 50,000 years, uh, as long as there was sufficient psilocybin in the diet that uh, uh, increased sexual activity and dissolution of ego and so forth was maintained. But the genetic programming was never stripped out. Well, so then after 50,000 years of orgiastic polygamy and uh, that kind of social glue, and notice the interesting thing about an orgiastic society is no concept of male paternity. Men do not know who their children are. Consequently, there is no sense of my children. There is an enormous loyalty to the children of the group. Children collectively, then, are seen as a very precious and, uh, and conservable resource. Well, eventually this happy story came to an end and the mushrooms dried up, became seasonal, the grassland turned to desert and with a big thump everybody got kicked out of Eden and with the withdrawal of the psilocybin into shamanism, into seasonal festivals and eventually its complete suppression and disappearance by anxious male dominators, uh, the old hominid style of egocentrism and dominance hierarchy reestablished itself right at the time when agriculture was invented. And so suddenly then what you get are kingship, standing armies, role specialization, marginalization of females, um, a whole bunch of negative, in my humble opinion, social styles and, uh, and behaviors. And we then are the unhappy inheritors of this. For 10,000 years, roughly, we've been away from the sacramental dissolving of male ego and sexual dominance hierarchies. And so there's a huge amount of of uh, sexual contradiction and uh, unhappiness and this doesn't work and that doesn't work and nothing seems to work and this seems to be our cross to bear. Well, it's because we are neither bonobos nor chimpanzees. We are somewhere in between and it's almost a matter of which side of the bed you get up on or what you ate that day or what your drug habits are, what kind of a sexual creature you are and what kind of styles of sexual behavior you're, you're comfortable with or uncomfortable with. It, it's a very curious thing and it's related to our high intelligence uh, somehow. I don't exactly understand this except maybe the, the connecting key is erotic fantasy. That erotic fantasy as an exercise eventually turns into fantasy, period, and then that eventually turns into government, poetry, religion, drama, humor, mathematics, music, 
so forth and so on. Anybody want a short comment? In the right way. Yeah, basically so what we want to do... We want to become as biological as possible. And then some of these issues about the Internet will disappear. I mean, uh, somebody recently... Here's an interesting statistic. Somebody told me recently that in, the, in an average square inch of soil, there's 500 miles of mycelial fiber. 500 miles of mycelial fiber in every cubic inch of topsoil on this planet. Well, imagine if you could plug into that net. We don't have to lay copper or fiber optics. If you're subtle enough, the wires are already there. Yeah, what would... Well, when you take psilocybin, it's interesting that uh, many people report the onset of hallucination is always the onset of an... You see a white network against darkness. You actually see the mycelium, and then shortly thereafter, the visions. And, you know, what would we think of the Internet if we didn't have to lay any wire or transmit anything through the air, but we could just plug in to the wiring already in the ground? That may sound like pie in the sky, but it's not that... Well, he wanted to transmit electricity through the ground. Uh, I don't think he realized that there were biological wires to do it because of the fineness of these things. But I think, you know, commandeering, co-opting, modeling, and copying nature is what it's all about. This is what alchemy understood. Nature is the great teacher. Nature has had, you know, five billion years to go down the, the worthless pathways and the toxic pathways and has always returned to a certain uh, Tao of um, an economy of construction and architecture and energy that is more elegant than anything we can possibly imagine. So, you know, a, a truly human future lies in integrating, studying, imitating, and becoming part of uh, the natural world without leaving any of our so-called technology or database behind. Well, that's it for this evening, I think. Uh, is there anything hanging from this afternoon? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah? What about that? Well, can you explain that theory about how we only have 75% females? No. no, it wasn't. What was the statistic first off? Well, it was in the context of supposing that you were going to reduce population by appealing to high-tech, industrial, educated women to have one child only. Well, then uh, you could leave it there and you would get this demographic collapse. But if you also you'd have a 50% reduction of population in 30 right. years and every successive 30 years. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So then the other possibility is uh, 
if you want to address the perceived overexpression of masculinity in society, I'm saying rather than try and change men, change the ratio of men to women. Obviously, if you do this, and there are more women than men, women will occupy more managerial positions. There will be an over... There will be a a compensatory feminizing of society, which seems to me less distorting and less a form of social engineering than trying to use the mass media to guilt trip men into suppressing testosterone levels. In other words, so just... And... Yeah, I feel that's going on. That man, and, the, and there are a number of things associated with that, that men are undervalued for the simple reason that there are too damn many of them. It's a drag on the market. Uh, <clears throat> 30-70 would be probably as the natural ratio. It's well known... Well, it's well, it, 70% women, uh, 30% men, yeah. Well, it's well known that uh, maternal resources in almost all societies are disproportionately directed toward male babies. And even at that, the best you can achieve is 50-50. So, that, you know, if everything were to relax, probably male births would, uh, would decline in the direction that I'm indicating. It's just, you know, I have not heard anybody else advocate this. No radical lesbian collective. Nobody has seemed to notice that you could, that, you know, what is it, sacrosanct? You can't suggest that these population ratios could be shifted. Why not? Uh, would make, uh, it makes perfect sense. No, it doesn't Why? I totally don't Well, you understand the demographic collapse occasioned by one woman, one child, right? Well, uh, if you have fewer men you have more women advancing at a faster rate, you have more managerial positions open to women, well, unless the men grow proportionately more competitive as their numbers decrease. I mean, all kinds of... You can play all kinds of games with curves here, but it's it's not written adamantine. It's just something to get you thinking about the fact that we're not trapped in any sense of the word. The fact that just with a one-woman-one-child policy, do that for 120 years, and a major item on the political agenda will be the question, are there enough human beings in the world? You know, you'd be down under a billion, uh, under 500 million people in 120 years without pogroms, epidemics, extermination campaigns, genocide. No, just simply one woman, one child. So the idea that there's some huge Malthusian momentum that can't be overcome, the, the momentum is not Malthusian, it's cultural and ideological. And, uh, 
Why is that a good idea? Well, hmm. <laughs> equal I'm, I'm saying equal distribution of maternal resources would probably cause it to happen naturally. That at, in the present situation, male babies receive uh, more extensive attention, nutrition, blah blah. So just uh, in this country, yeah, bringing up some emotion. So, <laughs> well, any solution is unworkable in the real world without bringing up some emotion. Uh, it's the principle of you don't make omelets without breaking eggs. <clears throat> the only course which seems to raise no emotion, and that also raises emotion, is business as usual. Uh, you know, we're teetering on the brink of several forms of apocalypse at once. The idea that you're going to waltz out of here without maybe raising the hair on the back of your neck is probably fairly naive. Uh, uh, but this just shows, you know, that the situation is open and flexible. I'm not even interested in defending this to the death. I just think it's, I just think it's interesting that nobody else has ever suggested. <laughs> well, even the one woman, one child thing. That's, I think I, I'm on your side with that. So we've come halfway. That's progress. <laughs> well, I just think that uh, there's an excessive strain on on all resources. It could be cured in many ways. It could be cured by limiting population. It could be limited uh, by limiting consumerism, uh, by limiting availability of consumer goods by what Hazel Henderson calls, calls uh, a real cost pricing, you know, which causes a can of beer to go to $30, this kind of thing. Um, there are many approaches. The point is not any given solution or ideological axe to grind, but that, that, that uh, the situation is multivariable and highly flexible and not determined. That's the basic message. Well, yeah, that's what I said, all these other ways. That was what the list was about, other ways to do it. And, you know, then there's also the horror trips, like Ebola and all that, which is lurking out there. If we don't come up with a solution, there are natural processes which uh, eventually, at some point, will begin to cut in. Ebola is a typical example. Well, maybe that's enough about all of that. Okay. Uh, moving on, <clears throat> uh, tonight we'll look at this mathematical model of the time wave and talk about it, and uh, maybe in a slightly different form than we have in the past. I can do this as a set-piece thing which is a voyage through time where you start with billions of years on the screen and then hundreds of millions and then millions and then decades asking you to compare your knowledge of history, specious though it may be, uh, to the unfolding wave. 
and ask yourself if there is some kind of resonance for you, some kind of congruence that you're looking at. First of all, that there is such a thing as novelty, that we can uh, hypothetically quantify and chart like a stock price or the rise and fall of temperature. In other words, a, a, a measurable quality in the universe called novelty, opposed by another measurable and contra-intuitive concept, uh, habit. And I mentioned this, I think, today or last night. The universe as a struggle between these two fundamental forces, habit and novelty. Habit building up, conserving, perpetuating, acting as the uh, medium of causal efficiency through time. And novelty, perturbation of habit, the unexpected symmetry breaks, the unexpected turning, the statistically improbable input into the system. And then, uh, once you have these two ideas in place, for me it seems very obvious then, based on the straightforward story that the combined natural sciences lay out for us, that the story of the universe is the story then of uh, what I call the conservation or the accumulation of habit. Habit is what the universe, I'm, I'm of novelty. Novelty is what the universe is producing uh, out of disorganization, out of the incredibly habitual laws of raw physics Uh, the universe is slowly perturbing itself to more novel and higher states of complexity and order. And it does this by a series of different tricks. And we talked about dissipative structures and autopoiesis and autocatalytic hypercycles and all this jargon that basically means perturbation through fluctuation to higher states of order. By, and so, by this version of reality, nature is a continuous gradient from the laws which rule uh, the motion of atoms and galaxies, the basically Newton's laws, a continuous gradient through biology into psychology, into game and information theory and and that sort of thing. In other words, the divisions of the natural and social sciences are purely artificial. And over all of this phenomena arches this law of the conservation of novelty. But it isn't a smooth curve. it isn't, uh, it isn't uh, a, a, an, an uninterrupted descent into novelty. It's a tendency toward novelty which can be perturbed and interrupted on any scale so that it may be perturbed and interrupted for milliseconds or it may be perturbed and interrupted for a hundred million years. But... In any case, given a sufficient amount of time, this tendency toward the conservation and production of novelty will reassert itself. 
Well, several interesting consequences follow from a model like this. Mm. One is human beings become much more interesting players in the game. Human beings emerge not then as chance uh, agglomerations of advanced biology, statistically improbable, but nevertheless somehow present without definable purpose or, uh, or uh, raison d'etre, changes from that into the inevitable consequences of the conservation of novelty. So humanity goes from being the, uh, the meaningless and the unexpected to the inevitable. And uh, it means then that the enterprise of human civilization becomes not this existential uh, um, imputing of values out of essence onto reality, but instead it becomes an acting out of a portion of the natural universe. In other words, it upsets the existential apple cart. It makes people matter. It not only makes people matter, it makes history matter. It not only makes history matter, it gives it an arrow toward an understandable goal. Something that we would call uh, complexity or concrescence or um, holographic self-realization, something that we can now, from our present position in technology and so forth, actually see ahead of us how this might work, how there might potentially be a world of distributed human consciousness in biological bodies with some kind of very painless interface into a godlike sense of omniscience, which was the electrically stabilized and maintained data field of the species. I mean, that's basically what we're talking about here. We can see how we could get there from here with nothing more than refinements of our technology and our, uh, our engineering goals. Uh, so that thing the eschaton becomes then a kind of inevitable attractor. Uh, this process is not entirely causal in the sense that it does not entirely proceed simply from the past into the future. The, the notion being put forward here is that time is not a perfectly smooth, perfectly level, perfectly frictionless surface on which you are free to skate in any dimension uh, with equal energy. No, time is, like everything else in the universe, time has a fine structure. It has a, 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 a textural quality to itself. It has, in fact, a kind of landscape. And events, systems of cause and effect, flow over this landscape seeking something that we can visualize as low energy states or states of high novelty 
which are defined as the bottoms of these creodes, these uh, epigenetic valleys through which processes are flowing. Well, this is a very different picture of time than the Newtonian picture. The Newtonian picture is a conservative picture, uh, but inadequate to experience. It holds on to the Greek philosophical conception that the universe should be describable using perfect mathematical objects. And long ago, we learned from looking at the planets that they do not follow perfect circles. And by studying other parts of nature, one by one, these, this Aristotelian and Platonic drive toward mathematical perfection at the surface of nature has been abandoned. It's not that nature is not mathematically perfect. It is, but at a more complex level than Greek geometry was able to reach. However, one of these Greek mathematical conceptions has managed to survive unscathed and unexamined and unchallenged. And it's the idea that time is this perfectly smooth, featureless, frictionless surface. And the reason that is held to so tenaciously is because you can't do science without that idea. Why? Because science depends on the, this very subtle notion called experiment. And built in to the idea of the experiment is the idea that you must be able to repeat the experiment. In philosophy of science, this is called the restoration of initial conditions. You have to be, you have to believe in order to do science, that you can restore the initial conditions of the system that you're studying and then let it go through its changes and watch it again and collect data and then restore the initial conditions and do it again. If it is so that time is not a perfectly smooth surface but some kind of moving landscape, then the idea of experiment begins to break down because there is no such thing as the restoration of initial conditions. You can never step into the same river twice, Heraclitus observed. If he'd been paying attention, he would have noticed that you can never step into the same river once. Uh, <coughs> but that's another story. Uh, so science at some point in the Renaissance made a, a hellish marriage with capitalism. And science began to be not about how good its descriptions of nature were, but how good its technological output and how marketable its technological output was. Well, at, at that point, the game was uh, basically betrayed. Now, uh, looking at quantum physics and looking at order through fluctuation and looking at non-equilibrium thermodynamics and uh, um, you know some of these more esoteric realms in cosmology, 
it's clear that we were that we were very naive about the structure of time. Notice that modern science is built around what is called probability theory. And the notion of probability theory is that if you want to understand how something works, you measure something about it 100 times, add those numbers together and divide by 100, and you now have the average behavior of the system. Now, notice how naive this concept average is. Again, it assumes that all moments are the same. You know, no one would do physics, would take a physicist seriously who suggested that a given equation should be applied on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but that a different transform be used on all the other days of the week. That isn't allowed in physics. Uh, So we get to the point then with modern science where you could almost say that modern science is the art of describing those systems so crude in their structure that they are not subject to temporal variables. So this turns out to be stuff like the motion of the planets, You know, that's pretty good. You can predict over fairly long periods of time. But in any long period, periodic system, chaos eventually makes Newtonian mechanics break down. You know, you cannot predict the exact position of Mercury 100,000 years in the future. Uh, At that many iterations of its orbit, chaotic factors begin to enter and smear the values. Uh, This is important for this kind of thing. Okay, so so what I'm proposing is to uh, essentially admit the primacy of experience the idea that time is a series of fluctuating variables. We experience it this way, we feel it this way, and then to look to, uh, for example, the I Ching, Taoism, these more feeling-toned models of time, but to look at them with a formal eye, in other words, with a mathematician's intent. And what I've done with the I Ching is uh, discovered a series of patterns in the King-Wen sequence, and I'm assuming here most people have some knowledge of the I Ching and its purpose, which is, its stated purpose is to chart temporal variables. It is the book of changes. What we're talking about here is changes as opposed to the unchanging Newtonian duration. Anyway, embedded in, in the King-Wen sequence of the I Ching are a series of mathematical transforms. Now, not so necessary to defend until we sort out this whole business with Watkins. Uh, <laughs> <coughs> however, since that was never part of these lectures, those of you who are not given to dedicating yourself to the altar of understanding the time wave are asked to judge it 
in a very direct um, and intuitive way, which is we look at history, which is a fairly known quantity, and we see if the predictions the theory has made about the past are sufficiently impressive that we should give a hoot about what it says about the future. See, it's easy to predict the future because who can naysay you? Predicting the past is considerably more chancy because it has undergone the formality of occurring. In other words, you're, you're sort of nailed one way or the other. Uh, but if you had an algorithm that correctly predicted the ebb and flow of empire and the spread of technologies and the migration of genes and the spread of new religions and so forth in the past, you would have uh, reason to uh, trust its extrapolation into the future. <clears throat> the people who wrote the I Ching, the I Ching uh, was pretty much finished before the earliest phase of what we call Chinese civilization. The Han Dynasty is from 400 AD, 400 BC to 400 AD. Before the Han is the Zhou. Before that is basically legend and myth. Uh, the I Ching seems to have come into existence in the early pre-Zhou period meaning around 1300 B.C. And the straight story as told in the I Ching is that there was this guy, King Wen, who got into some political trouble. He was an emperor, and he got kicked out in a coup and imprisoned. And in the course of his imprisonment in his meditations, he discovered the I Ching and wrote it down. There's also an earlier figure, Fu Si, and who is often depicted w with a tree growing out of his head. So what kind of person he was is not clear. Uh, <clears throat> a, a strong criticism of this theory, or I used to feel it as strong, was people would say, well, now let me understand this. Are you, uh, you're, you're proposing a revolution in physics uh, based on a Chinese oracle, is that right? <laughs> you're suggesting that we should chuck Newton and Einstein based on a, on a 3,000-year-old fortune-telling book, is that right? Uh, not exactly. The I Ching, my interest in it was not the text, which all that comes later. That's uh, Han and later. Even the Confucian commentaries are early Han. Uh, I approached the I Ching as a mathematical structure, and I wasn't the first person to do this. Um, uh, a German guy, Martin Scharnberger, I believe his name was, wrote a book called... Uh, genetics and the I Ching, in which he pointed out that the, that the I Ching is an exact homologue for the DNA. In other words, the DNA has 64 codons to code for all proteins. There are eight amino acids. There are eight trigrams. There are 64 hexagrams, uh, so forth and so on. 
if you wanted a natural uh, structure in language to model the DNA, you could not do better than the I Ching. So that's suggestive or interesting anyway, since supposedly these people had, we have no reason to believe these people understood anything about DNA. Nobody understood anything about DNA until 1950. Uh, but <coughs> here's... Uh, Here's how I imagine things might work. Our own culture has an obsession with matter, and you see how far down the road to this obsession with matter has taken us to the point where we can take the temperature of the interior of Betelgeuse we can create the anti-neutrino. We can build anti-helium in instruments at churn. We can do amazing tricks with matter because we've spent a couple of thousand years obsessively pursuing this. Well, imagine a culture uh, with a completely different obsession, an obsession to understand time, and an, an obsession to create a formal physics of experience. Pursue that a couple of thousand years, and you would be incomprehensible to any other culture, and you would probably know a hell of a lot about your stated uh, area of expertise. So, uh, I think that... Uh, through something which let's just call meditation and leave it there uh, and maybe with <laughs> drugs involved uh, it's possible to look into the organism and not to see the molecular structure of DNA but I've noticed that <clears throat> in the macrophysical world uh, like, for example, heliotrope bushes, the leaves, the placement of the leaves of the heliotrope are a direct download of the placement of the genes for the leaves on the helix of DNA. So the macrophysical world contains in some portions of itself reflections of its deeper physical structure. So imagine a form of meditation, perhaps psychedelically assisted, in which you still gross body functions, breathing and so forth and so on, and your attention drifts down into the near-death domain. Well, then, there you see the coming and going of phenomena. Phenomena of some sort. And perhaps this is a tradition, this technique, and perhaps it's centuries in its acquisition and, and the slow build-up of a picture of what this phenomena is. Uh, cate <coughs> categories of some sort, not an infinite number of categories, but some kind of syntactical deep structure. And then over time and through observational um, cross-checking, it's understood 64 such categories with unique qualities. 
and these become like the elemental like the elements of our chemical understanding of matter but they're the elements that build up time okay then just one last metaphor about the I Ching and this is how I really understand or I think this explains it to me this was satisfying to me it, this is in an effort to answer the question why should the universal categories be embedded in the human body and and here's the metaphor uh, think of sand dunes picture them picture dunes this is the most experiential moment of this weekend make, <laughs> make the most of it uh, picture dunes now notice that dunes look like wind we don't have to get into a semantic argument about this it's true dunes look like wind now let's analyze what this means wind is a time variable phenomenon that follows a gradient uh, dunes are like a lower dimensional slice of this same gradient here's a metaphor which will help instead of thinking of the dune as made of sand think of the dune as a computer think of every grain of sand as a bit now think of wind as a piece of software the wind blows the software is run the bits rearrange themselves in the computer and what we then have is a download of the instructions embedded in the software now in the hardware so if time is variable replace the the grains of sand replace the bits of the computer with genes and imagine that genes are being moved on a temporal landscape by the unfolding gradient of time as it expresses its categories then it becomes self-evident why the I Ching works and what it is and why we have a resonance with the larger universe and what all these nested and fractal worlds within worlds are it's that there is a kind of master pattern uh, and you can say that at the bottom level it's in the DNA and at the top level it's in, in uh, time and then it's reflected and its octaves are adumbrated in all the levels of organization in between you can model it from top up or bottom down but the, the pattern that connects is the primary datum of experience um, okay so that's why the I Ching is a good way to do this the mathematical details of how you get this wave out of the I Ching don't really need to concern us here uh, it's in the manuals it's published it's at the website if you're <coughs> of a bent to understand this uh, that's all there for you 
yeah, in order to get the, see the, the, the counterintuitive thing, as if the whole thing weren't counterintuitive enough, but the, the worst news is that it makes this prediction of, that is very hard to understand. It predicts that novelty, whatever that is, will reach infinity in 17 years. And I think this would be a much easier sell if that were 100,000 years out or 50,000 years out. The fact that it's 17 years out puts the whole thing into this, uh, you know, repent for the end is near kind of messianic, inflated, megalomaniacal, bad taste, bad news kind of thing that I'm trying to avoid. I mean, I'm not really trying to found a cult. I'm trying to disentangle a fairly psychically charged idea that a lot of people would like to ride into cultishness, but that I, I find more interesting as a hypothesis than a, a dogmatic uh, belief. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Now, that's something about the time wave that I hadn't thought about before. What if Terence had made his endpoint sometime, uh, say, in the year 3000 or something like that? In other words, what if, instead of predicting his concept of an eschaton being, well, relatively imminent, he'd put the date way out there so that he couldn't have been proven wrong during his lifetime? Of course, uh, as it turned out, he actually did die before the 2012 date, and so I guess he died without having to face up to the fact that, well, there was no eschaton on December 21st, 2012. However, uh, my sense is that if he had placed the end date several hundred years out, then there actually might have been uh, somewhat religious-like cults that were formed around that idea. And uh, the more you think about these things, the more interesting they get. I actually uh, have several more notes about things that Terrence said in this talk, uh, and I was going to say some more things about them, but we've already gone a little longer than I like, and I have a couple of announcements that I think uh, you'd rather hear about instead. First of all, there was uh, some very good news last week that has a direct relationship to what Cory Doctorow spoke about a couple of weeks ago in podcast number 474. If you recall that podcast, you will remember that one of the most serious issues he spoke about was DRM, Digital Rights Management Restrictions. Well, if you go to uh, psychedelicsalon.com and click on the Podcast 474 Program Notes page, you'll find a link to a story from EFF, where uh, Corey works, by the way, that's titled, Victory for Users, Librarian of Congress Renews and Expands protections for fair use. Now, in the article, the Electronic Frontier Foundation says, I quote, the new rules for exemptions to copyrights DRM circumvention laws were issued today, and the Librarian of Congress has granted much of what EFF has asked for over the course of months and extensive briefs and hearings. The exemptions we requested ripping DVDs and Blu-rays for making fair use remixes and analysis, preserving video games and running multiplayer servers after publishers have abandoned them, 
jailbreaking cell phones, tablets, and other portable computing devices to run third-party software, and security research and modification and repair on cars. Each of these have been accepted subject to some important caveats. That's the end of the quote. Now, please don't think that the war that the big corporations are waging against you and me has been won. Far from it. But this first important battle has gone up to our side, so be sure to click on that EFF link in the program notes and get involved yourself. This isn't a time to be sitting on the sidelines. Another thing that you'll find on our new PsychedelicSalon.com website is a link to an events calendar. And for this month, November 2015, you'll see that there are two events scheduled that uh, may be of interest to you. The first is next Saturday, November 14th in Occidental, California, where Kathleen Harrison will be leading the celebration for the opening of the Botanical Dimensions Ethnobotany Library. The following week, the Drug Policy Alliance is going to be hosting the International Drug Policy Reform Conference, which is a biennial event uh, that brings together people from around the world who think that the war on drugs is doing more harm than good. And uh, annually it brings together, or biannually, it brings together over a thousand attendees uh, from, oh, about 30 different countries. Uh, This year it's being held in Arlington, Virginia. And if you can make it, I'm sure that you won't be disappointed as uh, the attendees are going to have an opportunity to spend three days interacting with people that are committed to finding alternatives to the war on drugs. And uh, they can also participate in sessions given by leading experts from around the world. Which uh, brings me to a call for you to send me any notices of conferences, salons, and festivals that you think might be of interest to our fellow saloners. And the best way to do this is to use the contact link on the website. Uh, I get those directly uh, to me without having to first have uh, negotiated a raft of spam filters. (laughs) And in particular, I'd like to hear of any events that uh, may be of interest to students. Right now, the uh, only student-focused event on uh, next year's calendar is the three-day conference in April that is hosted by SSDP, Students for a Sensible Drug Policy, and uh, that conference also happens to be in Arlington, Virginia. Now, while I'm at it, I guess uh, I should give a big thank you to the 400 or so members of our new forums. And yes, I know, (laughs) forums are kind of old hat. And uh, probably like you, it's been quite a few years since I've actually participated in a forum. So I've been uh, really pleasantly surprised at how well this little group seems to be taking off. So far, there have been over 20,000 visits to the uh, 60 or so topics, with uh, one of the most visited being called A Place to Introduce Yourself. And uh, there, uh, a sampling of our members who posted something reveals that uh, while the average age of our group is around 36 years, our youngest member is 17 and the oldest is 86. (laughs) But uh, where most of the action seems to be uh, actually taking place right now is in the uh, way new friendships are being made. What's uh, happened in my case is that when I see a post that interests me, I either reply or sometimes send the person who posted it a private message. And that's uh, maybe the most important feature of this new site. You can send any other member a private message, and apparently uh, that's how so many of our new friendships are being made. Over time, uh, I think that we may actually have a way to uh, help a widely dispersed group find the others. 
While it appears that uh, right now the U.S. has the most members, we are also in good company of others from Canada, Australia, Belgium, Finland, Norway, Slovenia, France, the Netherlands, Germany, and New Zealand. <laughs> and uh, that's just the comments from uh, less than 10% of our members who've uh, introduced themselves. Now, one final announcement that uh, will be good news for some of our fellow saloners and <laughs> maybe not so good news for others. Well, it has to do with our RSS feeds for these podcasts. As you know, uh, a while back, the salon's listing was dropped from iTunes, uh, causing much agony, I am told. And recently I discovered that the reason they dropped our feed is because the file size got too big. So, in an attempt to remedy that situation, I very unwisely dropped all but the 50 most recent podcasts from that feed in, in the hopes that I could get iTunes to uh, pick us up again. However, uh, the law of unintended consequences struck. What I learned from uh, quite a few of our fellow saloners is that they really liked having a complete listing of all the podcasts in a single feed and that the particular aggregators that they were using still worked perfectly. But my dropping all but the 50 most recent programs uh, messed up the way they were uh, revisiting or first listening to these talks. So I undid the mess that I'd made, and now the old RSS feeds are back to normal. The only feed, of course, that's going to be limited to 50 podcasts is the new feed that's generated by our new PsychedelicSalon.com website. And now I'm sure you're totally confused. <laughs> well, here's the bottom line. If your old feed was working the way you liked it, well, then you should be back to normal. Unless, of course, you only got us through iTunes, in which case, well, you aren't even hearing this anyway. <laughs> Sorry about that. But going forward, I'm going to submit our new feed uh, to iTunes, and hopefully uh, we'll get listed there again. Now, all of this information is available on our website through a link in the sidebar on the podcast pages. So should you have any questions or input on this, uh, well, the best way to get me involved is through the forums, where I'll post a new topic specifically dealing with uh, all of this RSS feed situation. Actually, uh, everything's humming along quite nicely, considering all of the uh, updates and hosting changes that we've gone through in the past months. And uh, best news of all is that our new forums appear to be able to uh, generate enough income to keep these podcasts going without having to uh, add a donate button or to conduct an annual pledge drive. It's uh, this new interactive community that's uh, providing the backing required to keep these podcasts coming your way indefinitely. And so uh, if you want to check out our forums without paying the annual $12 membership fee, please feel free to sign up as a student member. There's no charge for the first year of student membership, and, uh, well, the truth is, we're all still students of these sacred medicines, uh, even if we aren't in a formal school. So, if you can, uh, please join us as our new community begins to take shape. We can certainly use your voice, or, uh, heck, <laughs> we can even use your lurking if that better suits you. Anyway, for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends.